Hello, I'm Tracy Metz. Welcome to Water Talks, The Big Five. These are a series of five conversations with people I interviewed for this podcast about the UN Water Conference and the New York Water Week, made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. Some of our guests had such amazing things to say that we wanted to give them more airtime. It's about doing something together. If we want to deal with the challenges in a way that is good for next generations and our planet, we can only do it together. This is Henk Ovink. If you've listened to this whole series, you will have heard him before. There's a reason for that. Henk was influential in shaping first water policy in the Netherlands, but he really made his name as a member of the task force Obama created in response to Hurricane Sandy. After that, for the past eight years, he has been the Netherlands' special envoy for international water affairs. All this earned him the nickname Mr. Water, or, as Obama called him, the water guy. But if you ask me, that should be Mr. Collaboration. As you're about to hear, this is someone who really believes that nothing gets done if we don't do it together. This is a big moment for him. He worked for a long time to organize the first UN conference on water in almost 50 years, together with Tajikistan. It was the high point of his time as special envoy, and it marks the end of his term. It was pretty clear that water, while being addressed at the local, regional, national level, in many fragmented ways, but at least addressed, it was very hard to get it on the stage and on the agenda of the UN and the multilateral level, uh, for many reasons also. But this is the first time in 46 years that the UN has addressed water. What has taken them so long? You can't blame the UN. The UN are the nations, the member states. So the UN system is not to blame for not having a conference. It's the member states, we, the countries. I actually don't blame the UN at all because they've been advocating for water since the beginning. So they are our best friends when it comes to water sustainability, water justice, water equity, water resiliency, water security. So don't blame the UN as an organization or any secretary general. Because the UN, that's us. Yeah, the UN is us. 46 years ago was the first time under the umbrella, under the guidance and the leadership of the United Nations, the world got together in Mar del Plata to discuss water and the importance for our world, our life, our planet, our earth, humanity, social systems. And I think it showed already in 1977 how important water is for everything life. The challenge with the conference was that there was no institutional follow-up in the context of the UN. And will there be this time? Nobody knows. It really is on us as a world to say that this is not only a conference where we come together, this is also the conference where we will have a follow-up. The fact that the UN is holding this conference and that people from all over the world are coming to New York for the New York Water Week, that is definitely a reason for optimism. But there are plenty of reasons for pessimism, Hank, aren't there? Because it seems like the more we talk about climate change and about water and sanitation and availability, all of that, the less we do. I totally disagree. The question is, are we doing always the right things? Actually, all these convenings and meetings lead to more action, but they're not always leading to the right direction. There's always a reason for pessimism in this world, but luckily there is always a reason for optimism. And it's a choice. 
you can make as a human being, you can make as an organization or a coalition, and you can make it as an institution or a politician. And that choice is on yourself. In this world of climate and water crises, it's refreshing that Hank is a true optimist. He tells me that he got that from his parents. I was born and raised in a very optimistic way. My mother was an activist, one of the first female school directors post-World War II, really a social entrepreneur. And my father was an architect engineer, a designer that knew that design could only come together because working together would bring the many aspects of design together. He was the third in a generation because his father and grandfather were also architects. Coming out of that positive optimism, there was always activism, leaving no one behind. My mother invented before the UN embraced that sentence. So I think that's my spirit. This is how I wake up every morning. I choose to be optimistic. And the reason why is that every person I meet around the world, being it in a place where there is war or conflict, where climate is hitting, where water is scarce, where pollution is tough, where competition on water is only bigger, in all those places, people have hope. So it would be totally arrogant for me to become a pessimist. Eh? From a global Western perspective, we give ourselves the luxury to be pessimists. Your roots in New York go back to 2012, 2013. After Sandy, Sean Donovan, who was then the Secretary of the Housing and Urban Development Department of the U.S. government, invited you to come to New York and be part of President Obama's task force to recover after Sandy. In that capacity, you started a design competition called Rebuild by Design. Great title. We worked closely with the Obama administration from the beginning. I think in his first or second month of his presidency, 2009, said to his team, his leadership team, no Katrina on my watch. And what he meant was he did not want a federal government under his leadership that had no clue what to do in the context of such a disaster. So he asked Secretary Donovan to come up with a new national disaster response framework. When Sandy hit, President Obama was up for re-election. October 29, 2012, a week before the elections. He knew what to do because they were ready. They were prepared. So preparedness is not only that our infrastructure is prepared, or that our communities are prepared where things go wrong. It's also that our governments, our institutions are prepared. So after his re-election, he issued a presidential order installing the Presidential Sandy Recovery Task Force, a rebuilding task force, a task force under his leadership. He brought together in that task force 23 federal agencies. John, as a chair of the task force, visited Berlin, for Christmas with his family and gave me a call and said, Hank, can you tour me around in the Netherlands? Because I want to know everything about flood management and water and resiliency in the Netherlands. So he not only got an understanding of our infrastructure, of our natural solutions, our na building with nature solutions, but he also got an idea on the collaborative nature on how the Netherlands is actually dealing with water resiliency and all the way to the governance and the institutional capacity. And I wrote him an email while he was on the plane, saying something like, Sean, this was an amazing visit. Thank you so much for your leadership. I think Sandy is an opportunity to really see it as a game changer and change the way how the U.S. and the world is working on climate resiliency. If you think so too, let's work together. 
We had $60 billion dollars to spend in the recovery. I said, we have to think about the future. That the money that goes into repair is fine. But wherever we can put a dollar in that really is about preparedness and about looking at that future, this is where we have to ensure that we capitalize on those opportunities. Because I remember you're saying, Hank, that every dollar that you put into prevention is worth four dollars at the end of the road. More, even. More four to seven. Depending on how you spend it, even more. You call it preparedness? I would call it prevention. Is there a difference? Preparedness means that when these disasters hit, that our systems, our infrastructure, our communities, our cultures, our communications, our understanding, our information, the organization, as well as our governments in how to help relieve, help repair, help respond, are in place. Moving people out of harm's way is also a way to prepare a moment the storm hits so they can return safely to their homes and see how they can repair. So preparedness pays. Every dollar spent according to the rules. Every dollar spent according to the policies. And those rules and policies come from the past and not the future. If you want to reinvent the future, you have to break away from those rules and you have to figure out how you can find an innovative space. I said, it is now our responsibility also to create that space for innovation. Did we really know what went wrong and right? Could we use Sandy as an X-ray to understand and then identify opportunities to really think about that future. And for that, I was convinced that we need coalitions to work together, not in competition. And that is what Rebuild by Design was about. We went to philanthropy and the Rockefeller Foundation, Judy Roden was our best supporter. She really helped bring together five other philanthropic organizations that supported the competition. And we reached out to the world and we selected 10 teams and brought them together. We brought the teams on bikes, on trains, on buses across the region, worked in soup kitchens, on the shore, with mayors, with governors, with community leaders, with all the local and regional actors, as well as the federal government, to really understand these vulnerabilities, the interdependencies, and therefore the opportunities. So halfway in Rebuild by Design, a year after Sandy hit, we presented these assessments here in New York, and also showcased 42 opportunities. And now we're 10 years after, and we have already concluded projects, larger infrastructure, nature-based solutions, community-led projects, and large-scale infrastructure in the making right now. So you can tour Hoboken, Staten Island, Manhattan, Long Island, and Brooklyn, and you will find Rebuild by Design solutions everywhere. That's great that the results of Rebuild by Design are now being realized. But I can't help wondering, how would New York do now if another Sandy struck tomorrow? Still vulnerable, like many other places, but what you also see is that if you really want to rethink these type of larger infrastructures, it takes time. In the Netherlands, we had evacuations because of almost riverine flooding in 1994 and 1995. 1995, we evacuated 250,000 people to make sure that they were safe. In the end of the 80s, we already had the Plan Stork, the Plan Ojevar, that was rethinking our riverine system. So end of the 80s, our first thinking on how to build resiliency in our system. Mid-90s, we had our almost disaster and having everyone escaped. 2007, we had the law on the room for the river. 
and 2020, the last project was realized. So that is, depending on how you count, 25 or 35 years to really do 30 plus projects of two and a half billion. We're now 10 years after sending and projects are already realized. Some of them are in the making and some of them are in their design. So on one hand, you can say hey, it's going slow. On the other hand, we know these type of complex, comprehensive, larger infrastructure projects where you need partnerships, you need community collaboration, you need the government buy-in and private sector buy-in. Take time also for your best solution. So that is nothing new. In that sense, you can actually say New York's going really fast compared to other places around the world. Is critical infrastructure better prepared? Yes. Is the whole city of New York protected? No, that's impossible. It's a larger economy than the Netherlands. Eh? It took us 35 years. This takes time. What is your legacy, Hank, as you look towards the end of your time as the special envoy for international water affairs? Yeah, others should talk about my legacy. <laughs> I've been campaigning for water for eight years, building coalitions, forging partnerships get to a better understanding. One of the first things I initiated was this study that was led by the, our Environmental Institute, the Geography of Future Water Challenges. I asked them, I want to put water on the map of the world in its interdependencies to show that water is connected to social, to justice, to environmental, to equity, to gender, to education, to economy, to climate, to biodiversity, to oceans, to cooperation, to peace and security, to everything. I think the conference itself, of course, as something we've been working on as a global community, I definitely put a lot of energy in that to make that work. And we moved Rebuild by Design to the world. We took it to a next layer and we called it water as leverage, really using water as a catalyst for sustainability, equity, and resiliency. It started first in India, Bangladesh, and Indonesia, and the cities of Chennai, Kulna, and Samarang. Then we went to Vietnam, back to India, more to Indonesia. We're now in the Waddenzee in the Netherlands, Germany and Denmark. And we're also in Colombia and Cartagena, working with local communities, governments, private sectors, designers, innovators and NGOs to really use water as a catalyst for sustainability, as a catalyst for equity and equality, as a catalyst for resiliency and to provide solutions from the very bottom up for everyone as opportunities to scale. So I think there are many ways that I can look back. I think the work in the Middle East and in Central Asia, as well as in parts of Africa, where water is really contested, really comes to mind. And there are many, many other ways. I will find the time to look back. I now think this is the time to look ahead, to really capitalize on this moment where we have the world together here in New York. This is the week where we have to show that we are true to our cause, that we also will institutionalize this, that we will never let go. That was Henk Ovink, the water guy, reflecting on the UN Water Conference of 2023, which he helped organize on behalf of the Netherlands in collaboration with Tajikistan. This was his final moment as the Dutch Special Envoy for International Water Affairs. He can rest assured that he has made a mark. Water Talks is a program by me, Tracy Metz, 
written and produced together with Jonathan Gruber. The show notes have links to Hank Ovink's most recent work. Make sure you check it out. Next up in this companion series of interviews to Water Talks is the American historian and writer Russell Shorto, the author of The Island at the Center of the World. Russell and I take a walk through 17th century New Amsterdam for a look at how the Dutch way with water shaped the world we live in today. Our theme song is called Into the Unknown by Pottington Bear, with additional music from Jason Shaw's Running Waters. Water Talks was made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. I'm Tracy Metz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>